0: Shalom. Welcome to the new millennium edition of the Torah teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Mari Judah. This portion begins at verse 19 with the words, Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. It's actually a new section In the book of Genesis, we believe that the books, as Moses wrote them for us, that there were natural moments when he had written, if you will, in the ancient sort of way, chapters. This is the beginning of a new section within the Torah that Moses began to do. We've introduced Abraham uh, to us, and now he begins to speak of the life of Isaac, of all of the patriarchs. Isaac has the least actually written of him and explained of him. We have a lot of information about Abraham. Uh, We have a little bit of information about Isaac. And then we have a lot of information about Jacob and his sons. And so this one portion is really about the life of Isaac, some things about him. Now, in the previous ones, he was a young boy and the things that Abraham did with him. But obviously, Abraham was dominant in those activities. But now Isaac is in this portion uh, dominant as the father and who will be the father of two sons, two twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And thus we begin this portion. Of This is one of the shorter portions in the Torah. And I think part of the reason why the um, the teachers of the Torah have kind of kept this short and, and concentrated on Isaac and not expanded over into the other parts of Jacob's life is Not so much in honor of trying to just give a single portion about Isaac, but this is probably the saddest Torah portion in all of the Torah. Because in this portion, we're going to hear about the testimony of another man, Esau, the man whom God hated. Now, we tend to think of God as God is love. But God has his limits, And in this portion, we're going to hear about the testimony of a man whom God hated. And obviously, we should learn the lesson from it. And I think one of the lessons that we should be learning is um, it is very sad to live your life and suddenly find yourself on the wrong side of the ledger from the Lord. It is just no real good way to express it or put a good spin on that. It's just, it's sad and in this particular portion, we're going to examine how in the world was that possible? How did that happen that a grandson of Abraham came to be the man noted known as hated of God? Let me begin reading there at uh, verse 19 of chapter 25, and let's introduce uh, this portion um, to us. Verse 19, Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban and of the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Let me stop there for a moment and begin to introduce essentially what we're going to hear in this portion. We're going to hear the story of Esau and Jacob and these two twin boys and how they began, they came into the world from the same parents and at the literally almost at the same moment each competing with themselves as to who will be the firstborn. Esau was the physical firstborn. And what will transpire here in the course of this is how they come into the world, what the differences were with them, and that's when it begins to happen because differences begin to come about in all spectrums. Not only the difference of their own personalities, the differences of their parents in treating them, the differences of what God will do with them and how they deal with one another. Just real briefly, chapter 25 deals with the issue of them being born and the birthright of Esau being sold. Esau will sell his birthright. Then chapter 26 is going to deal with what appears to be something that is separate or different than this story. It deals with Isaac living in the land of the Philistines here at Gerar and how he is expelled. But it does relate to what we're about to study. And then it deals with Isaac's blessing upon Jacob, thinking that it is upon Esau. And then finally, it deals with Esau's sorrows and his sadness of the events of his life. And we're going to find several sections in here, several sets of threes that are going to appear. And really, I think what this portion is trying to do is put some continuity together of, of the two fathers, of Abraham to Jacob. It's gonna to try to connect us and, and show something that's happening here. You've heard me make this statement before. And I'll repeat it again because it's, um, um, very significant in terms of how to apply the principles of Torah to our lives. What happens to the fathers is prophetic and will be happening to the descendants. And I've mentioned this to you before about Abraham's vision of going down into Egypt and his dream and how the Lord said his descendants will go down into Egypt and come out. We'll be looking at some other things that happened to the fathers. And what is happening here with Isaac in his life is absolutely profound in its impact of what has happened to the Jewish people, the sons of Israel scattered throughout the nations. And we're going to see a pattern here that gives a lot of, if you will, understanding I don't know that it's real explanation, but at least helps us to understand the process of what Israel has had to suffer from the nations, you know, throughout its life. Because there's a very clear pattern that will emerge here from the patriarchs, and Isaac is a key part to that. Are you familiar with um, the term uh, of a group of people called the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons? I'm sure you've heard of that before. I don't know if you are aware of it, but Saxon means the sons of Isaac, the sons of Isaac. And the Saxons uh, are, have been known primarily as being a people who were very mercenary and got involved in a lot of wars and conflict and contention. And Isaac has a lot of contention in his life uh, dealing with his neighbors. And we'll touch on some of that a little bit. We'll just give you a foreshadowing of some of the the things that follow to the descendants that's prophetically given to us uh, there. In the course of um, the birth of these two men, Rebecca is given a prophetic message. And the prophetic message is given to us there in verse 23, in which it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, it doesn't indicate to us that Isaac necessarily either knew well of this nor endorsed this, but certainly Rebecca uh, remembered this and kept this in mind, and it will be the reason that she will cause Jacob to do certain particular things that at face value seem inappropriate, uh, to at least to us and the average person. Um, but it will be driven by the destiny of the Lord. It will be driven by this plan that God has for these men. And he has purposed and has chosen that the younger Jacob in this case will be mightier and more than he who is born first or the older Of it's from it. And then I want you to take note of verse 28, and this is illustrated for us. Now Isaac loved Esau, but he had a taste, because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. In the Hebrew, it reads like this. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loves Jacob. There's a shift in the tense from the past tense of what Isaac did with with uh, Esau and it moves to the present tense of what Rebecca does with Jacob. Rebecca loves and there's something that continues on. Um, it is believed that this split between the boys was actually amplified by the relationships of the parents. That Isaac spent a lot of time with Esau and Rebecca, spent a lot of time with Jacob, and the emphasis on the present tense was that it carried the day. In other words, um, let me put it in a in a much more common term. You could have said if you'd have met Jacob in those days, you'd have said, You know, I think old Jacob's a mama's boy. you know he he hangs around with her. He, he didn't do anything but what she didn't say it. And she don't go nowhere but what well, he isn't there with her, and you know you you've seen sons that kind of hang around the house and and there's there's both parents and there's a, but but he's a mama's boy I mean his relationship with his mama is real strong and and as a result they kind of do things together they make decisions together and that's the reason what will get transferred is this vision that she has it will get transferred to him and it will be so that he carries that out. And that takes a very, very strong relationship for that to happen. So they emphasize there the present tense of the relationship with his mother. Now it begins at verse 29, one of the most interesting passages, and probably will best define the differences between the two. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, "'Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished.'" Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, at face value, if you don't look any further into this, this seems like a rather silly agreement that has been put together. You mean Esau came in for the field, he's a little tired, Jacob has made some stew, and he says, Hey, can I have some lunch? And suddenly Jacob comes up with the idea and says, Well, I'm going to sell it to you. I mean, you know, he's one of the family, I mean, why do not he just give him a bowl? I mean, what's the big deal here? What is Jacob doing? And so if you just take it at face value, it sounds like that Jacob, and this is where a lot of people believe that he was, that he's kind of a snide, conniving, deceitful uh, sort of fella. But that's not what this was about. That's not at all what this was about. And this is one of the classic places in Torah where you need to ask questions. And you need to dig. Need to find out what is really going on here. Why is this happening? If you look back in the previous Torah portion, one of the things that you'll discover is Abraham has just died. This was at Abraham's funeral. You know, it was a nice family funeral. And all of the family and all of the princes of the land and all the people who knew Abraham, and he had quite a life, had come to this huge memorial service to honor Abraham and to bury him there at Hebron. And all had assembled, and all of the family, and all of the princes of the land and the region had come to assemble and render their respect except Esau forgot to come on time. He was aware that Abraham was getting ready to pass away, just like your family knows when one of the previous generation is getting close to that point. And for some reason, he didn't position himself near. So that when the word came and they decided to have the memorial service, he's a little late getting there. In fact, you know, like most memorial services where you have the, all of the circumstance and the reverence and the assembly of the all of the friends and the family and the eulogy is said and they try to speak the honor of his name and then they bury him and they go through all of that and then they have a dinner. Everyone assembles and it's kind of a somber place, but they all assemble as to comfort one another and that was about the time Esau showed up in time for the meal. And his attitude as he walks in is expressed here is he doesn't offer any sort of apology or explanation or, gee, I'm sorry I'm late or, you know, any of that. He just walks in and is kind of a physical, selfish, caught up in himself person and he says, hey, uh, can I have some of that red stuff there to eat? And that's the reason why, immediately, Jacob says, First, sell me your birthright. Because it's the firstborn in the ancients that is supposed to officiate and serve as those who lead in the honoring of those who have passed. And he's not even present to do it. And Jacob wants to honor and wants to be part of the covenant and the descendants of Abraham and to render the proper respect. And so he's asking for, could you please give me those credentials so that I might render the respect that Abraham deserves? And and the attitude of Esau is one of, well, you know, look, I'm going to be dying eventually one day. I mean, it's, it's no value to me. In fact, he doesn't even negotiate for the price of a bowl of lentil soup and a piece of bread. He says, you know, it's not worth anything. In fact, the scripture indicates that he swore to him even before he got the bowl of soup. Jacob said, swear to me. And so he did. And then it says, verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some soup. Um, the value of the birthright for Esau wasn't even worth a meal. At least according to his words. It wasn't even worth it. He just <laughs> threw it on the ground to complete the deal so it was a full contract why Jacob made sure he had a bowl of soup for it. So that if... Esau ever came back and said, Well, you never paid me. You know, it was never a real contract. You never gave. He said, Yeah, I did. I, I gave you a bowl of soup. That's what you were willing to accept. You know, if you were having a funeral in your family, and let's say that you had a family and you had some siblings, and one of your siblings came walking into your parents' or grandparents' funeral and had the attitude that Esau had, I dare say, you would have been even worse than Jacob in dealing with him. In fact, it would have been one of those magic moments in which that I don't care if we are blood relatives, but you would have probably communicated, I don't need to see you ever again. And don't darken my door again. And there would be a schism in the family because of such Disrespect. And that's really, you know, what's being expressed um, in Esau devaluing and not counting his birthright to mean anything. He's saying that my grandfather Abraham don't mean a thing to me. My father Isaac doesn't mean anything to me. I don't count it a value at all. And as a sibling, if you were to ever hear one of your brothers or sisters speak in such a way of your parents, or of your grandparents in that manner, you probably wouldn't have a real loving, forgiving attitude. You'd probably make take some decisive steps in my own in my own family, I've had twinges of those feelings at moments when I wasn't certain that my siblings were rendering what I thought was appropriate to the passing of family members before us. So once you understand the context of this, well, that makes a lot of sense here. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's even expressed stronger because Jacob can insistently says this. Instead of first swear to me, he says the word, today, swear to me. He says it repeatedly. Today, give me your birthright. Why that day? because that was the day that they were honoring abraham today give it to me not tomorrow not later on so that i can go and render the proper honor that needs to be done and so esau agreed to this it's no wonder that god hated esau he has already told abraham i'm going to give you a covenant in which those that curse you i will curse I don't care if it's your own descendants. If they curse you, I will curse them. Those that bless you, I will bless them. That principle of that covenant that he made with Abraham, it extends to actual physical descendants as well as the heathen nations. It may be. So with that as a backdrop, that this is the way Esau gets crosswise with the Lord and gets crosswise with his brother, we then begin to see another set of events take place. And we get into chapter 26, and it proceeds into something that seems to be separate from them, from these two young men. And in fact, um, it reads through about how that Isaac goes with his family down to, uh, there's a famine in the land, and instead of going down into Egypt, he goes to the land of the Philistines where there's a king called Abimelech king of the Philistines. And the region that we're talking about in modern land would be the area that we call the Gaza. I'm sure in the news that you've heard about the Gaza Strip, an area where the Palestinians are located, down near the coast of the southern part of Israel toward the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the region in which that Isaac went down. He came down off the mountains of the Judean mountains and near Hebron and so forth. And he came down and he settled into these flatter areas down near the coast and began to live where there were better crops and foods and people and water and things like that. And he proceeds to build a set of uh, dig wells. Wherever Isaac went, he would pitch his tent, he would dig a well, and he'd set up an altar and he'd worship the Lord. And he came into the midst of where the Philistines were at, and the first thing that happens to him is things kind of get started okay, but he he goes down and he's kind of afraid of the Philistines, and so he does that same silly thing that his father Abraham did when he went down to Egypt. He was afraid because his wife, Rebecca, is such a beautiful woman that the Philistines are going to kill him and take his wife and and uh, he's going to suffer harm for it. So, you know, he does that same deceit kind of thing. And he says, well, you know, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You know, kind of a repeating of what his father Abraham had done. And uh, in the course of the events uh, I love this particular portion of scripture where it says Abimelech went, looks out his window one day and he sees Isaac um, sporting with uh, uh, Rebecca. Whatever the word "sporting" means, we know it means to have them to do with husbands and wives. And Abimelech, there is no question about it; he doesn't need to be explained to him any further. They're married, and so he, you know, challenges Isaac on this point. And as a result of determining, yes. Rebecca is his wife. He makes this rather interesting um, uh, proclamation. He puts throughout all of the land, and he says that, that anyone who lays his hand upon this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is uh, verse 11 of chapter uh, 26. Abimelech makes this very positive, very assertive statement about Isaac and his family. And he says, anyone who touches Isaac... Or his wife will be subject to the punishment of me, King Abimelech. So it sounds like things are starting out good. I mean it sounds like things are fine. And then the next thing you know is it says the Lord begins to prosper him, not just a little bit. It says like um, uh, verse twelve, it says, uh, He reaps a hundredfold. Not ten times, not twenty times, a hundredfold. Way beyond the other people. And what they say in the commentaries here is is that Isaac becomes richer than the king. Now, in every kingdom, you know, the king is supposed to be the richest guy. He's got the most stuff. He's got the best palace and all that. Only we got this Isaac living down there with us, and he's richer. He's better off than the king. And this is an embarrassment. Embarrassment. I mean you know can you I'm king of the Philistines and this guy with his family is better off than me and he's under my so-called protection and every time he does something the lord prospers him and blesses him and he increases more than me and I'm I'm collecting from everybody and so it says verse 14 so the Philistines envied him and at that point they begin to translate their envy into other things they said well you know We need to, this business of him tied up with Abraham and everything, uh, we need to, we need to get that stopped. We need to stop that blessing business that's going on. And so it says that they proceed to go and fill in and stop up every well that his father Abraham had dug. So that Isaac is, doesn't have the benefit of of his father Abraham's wells that had been dug. You know, because Abraham had done that thing. He'd lived in the tent, and every time he went someplace, he dug a well and set up an altar. And and so the Philistines started filling it in. So Isaac says, okay, I'll, I'll dig a well. Do you know how difficult it is to find water in the land of Israel just going out and digging a well? This is no easy task. In fact, in the land of Israel, if you drill for water, if you go digging for water, if you get water... You swear it's a miracle. In other words, literally the people, the testimony is God purposed you to have that water. Because that's how rare water is. Literally, water is life in the land of Israel and in that whole region. Anybody that digs a well and gets water is because God blessed you to get that. Isaac goes out and every time he goes to dig a well, he gets water. I mean, this is really irritating people. And it says the Philistines, I love this, uh, the logic. This is such modern day uh, logic today. It says the Philistines, when Isaac would dig a well and find the water, here's what they would say. Well, we know that's your hole in the ground. We know you dug that hole in the ground, but the water is ours. You know, it's a little bit like the Arabs in the world. You know, you can dig a well. But because of the underground structure where all the oil goes, that's the reason why those sheiks and um, the Arab nations, they don't get along with each other. Because if you drop, you're probably in the same underground lake, pool, whatever it is, their chasm of oil that goes across multiple borders. And that's the reason Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait. Because he swore that Kuwait was digging too many wells and it was taking the oil, sucking the oil out from under Iraq. And that's the, that's why he was claiming that he needed to go attack Kuwait. Well, in this case, Isaac is digging wells, finding water. And of course they're all claiming, well, that's water that came under the ground from our place. And so they would come into contention. And in fact, there's three particular sets of wells here that Isaac will dig before finally there's some peace over this deal. And, uh, if you want to do a really fascinating study, I can't go into it tonight, but I will tell you there's a deeper study here. There is a parallel of these three wells to the three temples. That the story of the, the hassles with Isaac with these three wells matches what we know historically has already taken place of the first two temples built in Jerusalem, and that the third well that he digs, which is a very broad place, we and this is the parallel, we know that the next temple, the last temple that will get built, that the temple mount will be expanded from 500 cubits by 500 cubits to 3,000 cubits by 3,000 cubits. It will be six times greater in the millennial kingdom. And so this last well is called a very broad place, which is a description of the third temple by the prophets, which has a very broad place. And the scripture speaks of the millennial kingdom in which that the whole earth, the surface of the earth will be a very broad plane. And so there's a kind of a prophetic picture that ties up. I mentioned that uh, just to tell you that there's other parts of this teaching that leads into the prophetic into the future. In any case, we have um, Isaac completing this and we have this story. We have this story of Isaac essentially getting expelled out of the Philistine land. He's pushed all the way back up into the mountain region again. And that's where I want to give you one of the greatest uh, parallels uh, that we have in this teaching of Isaac, which is, I mentioned to you about Isaac's sons, the Saxons, the fact that we're broad spread over the world, and that Israel has been broad spread over the whole world. So let me give you, in the context of what I've just introduced to you, this is a very common and understanding and teaching that has been given to the Jewish people, even to this generation, that explains this dilemma of Israel being scattered in the nations. Abraham, when he came out from his father's house and he went into the land, The thing that he had to deal with was being alone, being pressured, and the issue of being treated with intolerance. And the great lessons that we learn about Abraham's hospitality, as we've covered a couple of weeks before, is about how to be tolerant to other people because he was treated with intolerance. And so the issue with Abraham is the subject of being tolerated and dealing with intolerance with other people. But Isaac, the issue expands now to just not being a case of being intolerant to literally being expelled and when we get to jacob that we will see here later on we will and it's through esau that does this we get to the point where jacob's life not being you know people treating him with intolerance or pressuring him not that he's being expelled but his life is being threatened and esau will threaten him with his life and so what you have is you have three modes and three descending or ascending however way you want to explain this Things that the sons of Israel, the descendants of these fathers, will have to endure. And by the way, we as messianics, this is what we're a part of. Every one of you who has become a messianic, then come into this movement. One of the things that you've had to deal with is like when you heard that Abraham is your father and you began to identify with him and his heritage, one of the things that you had to endure was other people treating you intolerantly. The people whom you would think would be so tolerant, and in this country, you know, where we tolerate all different types of peoples, in your own houses, and in your own families, you've had to endure intolerance. You've been pressured. You've been told, don't do that. Don't be a part of that. Oh, you shouldn't be there. Why are you there? I did a lady's funeral this uh, this week, a lady that came down to Sukkot. And in her community up there, she had the strongest witness in her community amongst these Kansans in Dickinson County, Kansas. And I grew up from there, and I know what those people think and how they feel. And if you show anything that looks Jewish, it is so strange and so different, they can't help themselves but just almost go ecstatic with intolerance to you. They just don't know how to deal with it. And they literally, her testimony was up there, was, when they heard that she was getting involved in messianic things and reading from the Old Testament and turning to the words of Abraham and she started repeating some of this teaching and so forth with her family and her friends and her community that she was up to, they all thought she was in some kind of cult. What kind of cult have you joined? Like, it can't possibly be anything that's right or correct. You have gone off your rocker. And that's what happens when you start identifying with Abraham, when you start becoming one of the sons and daughters of Abraham, when you start speaking with honor of our father Abraham and the covenant that God made with him, it not make any difference that our theology says in him, in his seed, would all the families of the earth be blessed. Never mind Abraham is the central figure which is put into paradise by the Messiah himself. Forget all that. You know, if you're identifying with Abraham, it's completely different from us, and therefore we have to be intolerant of you. And every one of you have had to deal with that. The second stage, brethren, is expulsion. They move from intolerance to expelling you. And some of you have already had to endure... As a part of the Messianic movement, your brethren, your Christian brethren, your loving Christian brethren, deciding that they can't tolerate you anymore. And therefore, they must expel you and remove you from their midst. The third level, Jacob's level, is they threaten you with your life. Now, the Jewish people, looking over the history of the last 2,000 years, Here's the way they see it. First it starts with intolerance, then it moves to being expelled, and finally with being killed. The first level, this is Jewish thinking, the first level is, and let me put it in the context of this. Listen to this statement. You have no right to live amongst us as Jews. That's what it starts with. That belief. You have no right to live amongst us as a Jew, as a Hebrew, as a descendant of Abraham. And so we don't like your Jewish ways. We don't like your customs. We don't like your traditions. We don't like your heritage. We don't like you going around inferring, suggesting, claiming, repeating whatever you do. That somehow you are God's choice. That He's made a covenant expressly with you as opposed to other people. That you are a descendant of Jacob whom God loved and not of Esau whom God hated. How dare you suggest that you are A choice, the choice of the living God. So we don't like you being like that. We don't want you around. So you know what the world basically has done? And this is the way the Jews understand this. Christianity is the one that did this. We got to convert them Jews. Let's change them so they're not Jews anymore. we'll we'll have them around, but they won't be Jews anymore. And that's what Christianity for the last 2,000 years has expressed as a message to the Jewish people. We want you around, but we don't want you to be as Jews around us. I'm going to share something with you out of church history that most Jews are very, very familiar with because it's part of their teaching on this point, which is going to come as a shock to you. But it is true. It's well-documented, and so that you can understand kind of the Jewish perspective on this point. There's an ancient letter that was found, that was written. This was in Europe many, many years ago, about, all oh, three, 400 years ago, about the time that Martin Luther was operating, in which that this landowner, is writing a letter to his pastor, his bishop, or whoever's in charge there religiously that he's checking in with, and he's reporting that he hired this tenant family to come work his land. But then upon finding out that they were Jews of Hebrew descent, he had done the following. He had taken the husband, he had bound him hand and foot, and he had thrown him into the pigsty where the pigs had killed him that he had sold his wife into servitude as a, as a bound servant to another family, that he had taken his son and had brought him in, set him at his table and forced him to eat pork so that he could be his adopted son in his family, and he had deflowered the daughter. And he was asking for counsel as to what other Christian acts that he should perform upon these Jews. That's historical Christianity. That's what Jews understand conversion to be. That's what, when they say the word conversion, that's what they understand it to be. That's what, when they say the word conversion, that's what they understand it to be. Just uh, 250 years ago, these same Christian Protestant religions that came to this country and that we know to be here in churches here today, used to have a series of creeds. I'm sure you've heard of this. These creeds of faith that they would repeat and state. You know, I believe in God and the three parts of God. You know, you know basic statements of faith, but they were called creeds because they were liturgical and they were written out. There were special sections of these creeds just for Jews who might come to faith. In fact, in simple terms, let me give it to you this way. Had I lived 250 years ago and I had come into one of the Christian communities and I had said, I have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm a Christian now. Because of my Hebrew background, they would have taken me, taken all of my property, my possessions, my home, And I would have lived in the abbey in the back part of the church. And I would have been bound to the servitude of the clergy of the church, serving them for the rest of my life to prove to them that I would never, and I'm repeating from their teachings, that I would never light another Sabbath candle and that they would definitely witness that I would eat pig to affirm my testimony of believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And that I would never keep another Jewish holiday or another Jewish expression or ever speak Hebrew again. That's Christianity, historical Christianity. It's called conversion. And they see this statement, you have no right to live amongst us as Jews particularly that last part, as Jews. And they want to get rid of that part. That same statement goes a little bit further in some of the nations in history, and these are from the Christians. Any time Christianity ever gained to political power in any nation, it was bad for the Jewish people. They are the ones who most strongly in this country believe in the separation of church and state. Why? Because every time historically, for the last 1,700 years, any nation that takes on a Christian-style government, it's bad for the Jews. Why? Because the Jews get kicked out. And they're forced to leave. That's church history. And so when Isaac gives to us, you have no right to live amongst us, you're going to be expelled Well, that was the second step through Isaac. The third step, you have no right to live. Listen to the statement again. You have no right to live amongst us as Jews. Clip the word Jew off. You have no right to live amongst us. And then it's shortened to you have no right to live. And of course, the Nazis are the ones that really carried that out. With a Christian cross. And I have news for you, brethren. This is true history. The seat of Protestant Christianity in this world at the start of World War II was Germany, not the United States of America. The nation that was the seat of Protestant Christianity was Germany. It wasn't the Catholics. They expelled them. They didn't kill them. Protestant Christianity took the last step to the level of Jacob. And they didn't just expel them, they killed them. They said, you have no right to live. And the model that we have here, this story, this story that we have of Isaac, is the second stage in that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From conversion to expulsion to you die, you're being annihilated. Because when we get to Jacob, well, you'll see that that's what he did. He, He dealt with the fear of his life. And so we have that model. And they see that as prophetic. Now, brethren, the reason I mentioned to you that and I tell you is, is that right now you're just at the first stage. They're just being a little intolerant. They don't want to tolerate you because you identify with Abraham. Soon, and hopefully not too soon, but I fear that it will be sooner than we want, we'll be expelled. Because we identify with Isaac, and then as you begin to identify with Jacob, then your life will be threatened. We're supposed to be learning lessons here of our fathers to understand how do we get through that because they got through it. They dealt with all these issues, and we're supposed to learn how to deal with these issues as well. There's a lot, little more, little more cost here than maybe we first thought. There's an expense. You know, because anything of great value is going to cost. And our faith is worth a great, great price. Our heritage is very valuable. Esau didn't value it at all. He said, it's worthless. It's worth nothing. And so God said of him, I hate you. I have nothing to do with you. The man that God hated. And the choice, obviously, for us is that we should choose the way of Jacob and value it. If you ever have the opportunity to minister to some of my brethren, my Jewish brethren, one of the things that you're going to have to deal with is that the rabbis have told our brethren, and it's a kind of a brainwashing, it's a misinterpretation of this story, that if you choose Yeshua and Jesus... You've sold out your heritage for a bowl of soup. That you're no better than Esau. That's not true. That's not true at all. I believe that if you reject Yeshua, you've rejected the birthright. The spiritual promises of Abraham that in his seed, single seed, would all the families of the earth be blessed. That you've rejected the heritage of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, that you've walked away from the great promise that Abraham gave to us that came from the Lord. And it's the exact opposite. It's not a rejection of our heritage. It's an endorsement of our heritage. And and since the rabbis have told all of the Jewish people, well, if you believe in Jesus, you can't be a Jew. And the church has gone along with it. Historical Christianity has gone along and said, yeah, that's right. When you accept Jesus, you can't be a Jew anymore. Well, Peter didn't listen to that. John didn't listen to that. Paul didn't listen to any of that. Paul was quite assertive about the fact that he was definitely a remnant of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day and concerning the law, he was trained as a Pharisee. And he still proclaimed the Messiah. He never put any of those things above the Messiah. He always put the Messiah above all of those things. But he did not get rid of it. In fact, he specifically said in Romans 11, he said, has God rejected Israel? No, God forbid. God forbid there's always been a remnant of those by faith, and there always will be a remnant by faith. And he specifically said those who are the remnant of Israel, those of the real Israel, are those who have the faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. It's the rabbis who have come along who don't have the faith in the Messiah, who have perverted the definition of who Israel, real Israel is. And we got the story of Esau and Jacob all backwards. Now, one of the things that we have to uh, deal with, uh, with regard to the story of, of uh, Esau and Jacob, has to do with, um, you know, it doesn't sound like God is being very righteous there. Uh, he's certainly not being very fair about the way he's treating Jacob and, and the way he treats uh, Esau. And in fact, when you read that uh, passage, which is repeated in the New Testament several times, uh, he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. You know, I can remember back in my earlier days reading that passage and going, uh, what? You know, God, uh, did you slip a cog on me? I mean, you know, your love and, you know, how, how can you do that? And that don't seem right, you know. How 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 can you justify that, you know, taking that attitude toward Esau? I mean, I mean, there's lots of bad guys in the world, but to make such a statement like that—you you hated Esau. And one of the struggles uh, that comes in our faith is—is—and uh, I think that's the reason why we have part of this teaching in the Torah early on is to teach us about certain things about the characteristics of God. His what our heritage is, and about what we call the doctrine, we call the doctrine of election. Now, if you go to seminary and if you go off to Bible college, it's one of the 27 major doctrines that they teach in the New Covenant faith. It's called the doctrine of election. How God chooses, uh, someone and doesn't choose another. And, and that's what you've got in this classic case. God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. You've got God's election, God's choice being expressed here. And people are just not quite satisfied with, well, God's sovereign, he can do anything he wants. No, he doesn't do just anything he wants. He follows rules. He puts uh, rules down and, and he has righteousness. He does the right and just thing. And so how can you justify that? Well, it comes down to this, and let me just put it to you simply. Our concept that we think God has to be fair is absolutely flawed. Fairness is a doctrine amongst men. There is nowhere in the scripture that it says God is fair. That's not one of the attributes of God. What it says is God is just and he's righteous. But it doesn't say he has to be fair. Now think about this for a moment with me. If God really was fair, we'd all be dead by now. We'd get what we deserve there would be no chance for mercy and no no way to to make an adjustment to our situation. I mean, if he was fair, we'd all be in trouble. You know, if we took that same doctrine of fairness, the way we treat each other, you know, there's not one of us that would make it with the Lord. Thank goodness God is not fair. Thank goodness that the Lord is full of mercy and justice and righteousness and truth, and He deals with the issues that we do, but He does it within the context of those things. Let me take you to Romans chapter nine, where uh, very uh, where this this uh, doctrine is is uh, being expressed in the new covenant, and it's uh, it's really key for us to understand this because there's going to come a moment in your walk, in which that, as you get closer to the Lord, and you sense the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God and His great salvation that He's given to you, and you sense the special way in which that He has formed an intimate, personal relationship with you, and it's just going to overwhelm you. It's, and you're going to cry out and you're going to go, Why me, Lord? Who am I that I should be the recipient of your gracious choice? It begins in Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, and here's what Paul says to us. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are regarded, regarded as the descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will you? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of the glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Who are we to question if God so desires to show his great loving kindness and mercy to the world? And then he picks you to demonstrate it with. Who are you to question that? Well, you. You have no right to question. You are just the benefactor of it. And part of the reality of understanding God is that God is God. He's not a man. And he doesn't make decisions like men make decisions. He's not fair. He's just. And Esau got what he deserved. Just as you would exercise the same judgment in your families if your sibling acted in the same manner. Just, correct, appropriate, righteous. And what we should be stirred to do is let us choose the Lord. Let us be part of his choice. And the whole process of explaining the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll go all through all the choices that God will make, down to every little rule, including how you will worship me, is he's trying to teach us a very, and the key word here, special choice that God makes. We call it grace. We do not deserve to be chosen. Chosen. We don't deserve it, but he does it. So what we need to do is come in agreement with it instead of fighting it or challenging it and accept this gracious choice. It's illustrated to us by the giving of the Messiah. And it's not just, okay, I pick him and not him and that guy. No, 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 it's it's way more than that, way more. And we participate in that process. There are some who will not accept God. There are some who are going to turn away. They're going to make that choice. And God says, all right, you're reserved as a vessel of wrath. You've made your choice. I will now manifest God, the living God, to others using you in that way. And then some accept And he says, good, I will use you to show forth the living God and manifest myself to others by being merciful. But all will see. In fact, if you go through the study of the Exodus, one of the things that's very clear and emphatic that Moses and Aaron do before Pharaoh is announcing to Pharaoh so that you might know the Lord, Pharaoh. The reason why you've hardened your heart and the reason why we're going to go through this whole Judgment routine is so you might know the Lord. I want to take you to the last part of what he says here in Romans where he quotes a series of passages, verse 25, 26, and so forth. He's quoting some passages, and he concludes this by saying, quoting from Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, And it shall be in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Very interesting passage of scripture. Very compelling passage of scripture from the prophet Hosea. In fact, that expression there, the sons of the living God, it only happens once in the whole of scripture. Only once. There's a very interesting story right after the resurrection of Yeshua, in which the disciples, not knowing what to do, you know, uh, they saw him die. They saw him go in the grave. He came out of the grave and he appeared unto them and he's not around at the moment and they're going, well, what do we do next? I mean, we've been involved with this guy for three years. I mean, what, what do we do now? in which that not knowing what to do, Peter said, well, anytime I don't know what to do, I go fishing. So they all trooped back to Galilee and they went fishing. And they're out in the boat fishing. And they've been out there all night, all of these disciples, all these guys that saw the resurrection and wondered, what in the world's going on with my life and the world and was that the Messiah or what? And they're out there fishing and it's like Sarah, who can't have a kid, and Rebecca, who can't have a kid, and so forth. Then they ain't catching no fish. They're out there fishing, and there's no fish. And they've spent a long night out there. And it's in the morning time, and um, they're uh, standing in the boat. And there's—they don't know this, but there's the master standing on the bank, and he yells out and he says, "Hey guys, you get any fish?" And they yell back and they say, "Uh, no, we we didn't catch no fish. And so he says, hey, throw your net in on the right side of the boat. And you can imagine the expression, look, we've been out here fishing all night. Throwing the net in one more time ain't going to catch no more fish. You know what I mean? But somebody says, hey, go ahead and do it. Try it. And so they do. They they throw the net in. And the scripture says suddenly the net was filled with fish. Now, these guys have been trooping around with the Messiah long enough, they know that's got to be the hand of God. That that must be the master. Now they didn't quite recognize him, but it says Peter he puts his outer garments on and he dives in the water and he <laughs> swims into the shore, and sure enough, it's the master and and they bring the boats in and so forth. And, and here's the master and he's got some charcoal and he's got a nice little beach set up here. And he's got some fish cooking. I don't know where he got his fish, but he's got some. And and um, and he says to him, he says, hey, fellows, uh, bring, bring some of that fish with you. And the gospel records for us there in John 21 that it took many boats to bring the net in. The net did not break. It took a lot of people to help haul that net in. They caught exactly 153 fish. 153 fish. Not 154 fish. Not 152 fish, but exactly 153 fish. And then all the disciples sat down and had this very interesting breakfast with the Lord. And one of the things that is not real clear to a lot of brethren, New Covenant brethren, about that story is is that I think John and others were stunned because in the Hebrew gematria numerical value, which good Hebrews would have known, we know that that phrase from the prophet Hosea the sons of the living God, it's the only expression in the scripture that equals in numerical value 153. And it was by no accident they caught 153 fish. The Lord was giving them an illustration that they were getting ready to be commissioned to go out and fish, not just for any men, but for the sons of the living God. God's choice. And that one of the things that was being expressed to them was the net will not break. You will catch every one of them. You will not lose a one. And it's really a wonderful message about God's choice. We are one of the 153 fish. I'm telling you right now, you personally, as you sit here, you're in that count. If you're not present, if you're not part of the kingdom, then the number's not right for the great plan of God. Because he has chosen you. This is what Paul says from before the foundations of the whole earth. That he chose you before there was an earth he knew you and he is that's how special that choice is of us we are not descendants of esau we are descendants of jacob we're not just the descendants of just jacob but of isaac and of abraham we're special by because of god's Choice. What we're supposed to be doing is responding to that choice. In responding in faith. Now, if you'll recall, I told you the first stage is intolerance, the second one will be expulsion, and the third will be the threat to your life. It takes leaders who think you don't have a right to exist to get to those other levels. And this man thinks you don't have a right to be a Christian. And he thinks that you're not appropriate or correct. The Nazis didn't even consider Jews to be humans. They considered them to be vermin, like maggots, something to be squashed and exterminated. And we are on the brink of having a chief executive officer of our country who thinks these thoughts toward us. Now, that's all stuff that happened in history, but that's not supposed to happen in your life, is it? You're part of the world, brethren. You are part of history. In fact, history is being made now. And what made you think that if you were God's choice, that you weren't going to endure the same things that those that have been chosen by God in prior generations have had to endure. See, that's what this lesson is called, generations. This is the destiny of every generation, if you're of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you're God's choice, you will be rejected by the world and by the enemy. You choose God, and as a result... They don't choose you anymore. The world won't choose you as a result. That's what this lesson is uh, supposed to be teaching us about. It's supposed to be preparing us to understand that we have a destiny in the Lord that's very valuable, a birthright that is precious, and that we should be following those who desire the birthright. Now, I want to show you the final lot of Esau after he loses his blessing. Now, we talked about the birthright, but if you recall, Rebekah, because of the prophecy given to her by God, sends Jacob in dressed as Esau with his garments, and he's the one who receives the blessing from Isaac in Isaac's final days. And while they may accuse him of deceiving and supplanting and things like that, it's very clear this was God's choice. This was God's intent, his purpose, and this is the way it worked out. And that God was in complete agreement with what transpired in terms of Jacob receiving the blessing. Even was in agreement, did not take issue with the method in which that it was carried out. But when Esau came for the blessing and he discovered that he had lost the blessing, look with me now in the final words of Genesis 27, beginning at verse 36, the testimony of Esau. And this is where we call, the reason why we call this the saddest portion, the saddest tor portion there is. Genesis 27, beginning at verse 36. Then he said, this is Esau speaking, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He has taken away my birthright, and now he has taken away my blessing. That's not true. When the enemy speaks, he'll try to lie to you. When God speaks, it's truth. But when the enemy speaks, you need to be real careful because that's not true. The enemy is called the father of lies. He'll twist it. Jacob did not take Esau's birthright. Esau sold it. He threw it away. He devalued it. That's really what happened. And with regard to taking away his blessing, his mother is the one who worked the plan, and it was his father who gave it away. And in fact, at the very moment that Jacob came in and was confronted by his father Isaac and And Isaac said, I hear the voice of Jacob. How can you be here to receive the blessing? Jacob's answer in verse 20 was because the Lord, your God has caused it to happen to me. By the way, that's the same testimony that we have when it comes right down to the essence of why did we get chosen by God? Because the Lord, our God, has caused it to be that way. Now, if every one of you were able to examine your life, I'm sure that your life would be checkered and dotted with all manner of inappropriate behavior and deceit and other kinds of things. And Jacob's a pretty righteous fellow compared to you. And God has chosen you to receive the blessing. So it's not hard to believe how God could cause Jacob to receive the blessing. Verse 38, And Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And the tears of Esau, they say, were the most loud and bitter tears that had ever been cried. In fact, the New Testament records for us, turn with me to Hebrew chapter 12, the lesson of Esau, the following words, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. This instruction is given. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. When you reject your birthright, when you reject the heritage of your spiritual father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've made your final choice. You've made a decision of what your inheritance is even though you may seek it with repentance and with tears, the Lord has said no. And that will be the same tears that will be cried by every sinner at the final judgment. The tears of Esau. They will be crying and saying, give me one more chance. And the answer will be very simple. You made the same choice Esau made. You did not value the heritage of your father, Abraham, at all. Therefore, you didn't value the heritage of everything that followed, including the Messiah, including my plan for you. For more information about Line and Land Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlam.net. Thank you.